You know, the bio- biographical stories of the Bible show you and I how people play an important part of God's unfolding drama of redemption. It's in the biblical biographical stories that you and I, we get to see how God works with people who are essentially and fundamentally just like you and I. We get to see truth that is played out or clothed in humanity. You and I, we tell these stories over and over. We start telling them to our kids when they're little. And we tell them over and over because it's in these flesh and blood stories that God's truth, it becomes real for us. Faith can be all theory, right? Until you see it in the story of someone like Abraham. Courage is abstract until we look and stand with David as he battles the giant Goliath. Doubt, that's somebody else's problem until we struggle alongside a a guy named Thomas. I love the Bible's biographical stories. It It tells it to us straight, even with the heroes. See, if they sin, we read all about it. Nothing's hidden, nothing's censored, nothing's covered up. There is no fake news when it comes to the biographical stories of the Bible. We get the whole truth of men and women whom God uses. And so we read about the story of, you know, Abraham and how he lies about his wife. We read the story of Moses committing murder, of David committing adultery, of Peter denying Jesus. See, I suspect that most of us here this morning, we all struggle on a certain level with with knowing where we want to be with the Lord. Knowing where we want our faith to actually be, we struggle with that yet knowing we're not there yet. And at times when you pause and you think about it, and that can be difficult and hard, and we realize that this reality gap between there and where I'm at, we realize, man, that sometimes it's like a huge gap. The chasm is wide. But listen, when you and I begin to read the biographical stories in the Bible, we see that even the great heroes of the faith They struggle just like you do. They struggle just like I do with the same problems that we all deal with. Discouragement, uncontrolled ambition, lust, greed, bitterness, and much more. You see, the characters of the Bible, they're just like us. And with that as our backdrop today, I want us to look at one of the more important people in the Old Testament. His accomplishments were many, But he's often overshadowed for you and I. He's overshadowed by his grandpa, uh, Abraham, and his son, Joseph. Though I think most of us in this room, we probably know more about Abraham and Joseph. Did you know that it's actually Jacob's story that starts in Genesis 25, goes all the way to Genesis 50? His story is the one that actually covers half of the book of Genesis. As we dive into the story of Jacob today, we are going to see uh, that he is the most human of all people in the Bible, of all the characters. He's not the one who marches from victory to victory to victory that we elevate and say, oh my goodness, this guy's amazing. No, Jacob's life is actually a struggle from the very beginning. He had just as many defeats as he had victories. You see, it's a lot like our own lives, right? You ever find in your life that you take two steps forward 
but then you take one step back. Have you known that to be true? I know I have. Jacob was a schemer and a dreamer. He had an eye for business, but he also had a heart for God. He cheated his brother, and he wrestled with an angel. He deceived his father, and yet he heard the very voice of God. His life is a paradox. It's an enigma. It's a riddle. It's a mystery. He was a man with warts and scars and all. He was a person. He knew, you know, the sideways paths of life, the detours of life. He never had it easy, and he never made it easy on himself. He made mistake after mistake after mistake. And yet, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21 tells us, and lists him at least, as one of the heroes of the faith. In, this, his, in his story, there's both warning and discouragement. There's both warning and encouragement to us for our lives. There's much to follow, but there's also a whole lot to avoid. In all of it, over these next few weeks as we look at his story, we are going to discover that the real hero in the story of Jacob is not Jacob. The real hero is God. And I would suggest to you that's the same, that's truth is true for you and I, right? The real hero in our life, it's not us. It's what God does in our life. It's through Jacob's story that we see the justice and the mercy of God. Jacob, if you want to have maybe this image, somebody you might know a little more about their story than Jacob, Jacob is kind of like the Peter of the Old Testament. He's a man God uses in spite of himself, okay, in spite of himself. If we had a portrait sitting here of Jacob, we could write in big letters across that portrait, Romans 8.28. Why? Well, in Romans 8.28, it says this, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Because if anybody ever proved that through his love for God, that all things did end up working for good, if there was anybody that that was true of, it was Jacob. God never gave up on him. God kept working on him and working through him. And in the end, Jacob, who was a schemer, he became a prince. This manipulator became a man of faith. When God is through with Jacob, he is transformed into a patriarch, the father of a great nation. If you ever wanted proof, well, God identified himself to his people on various occasions. And what would God describe himself as when he, when he went to the people and said, this is who I am? Exodus chapter 3, verse 6 says, I am, God says this, he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. See, I'm glad, because I, I know the story. I'm glad, and some of you know some of the story, or maybe all of the story. I'm glad that God is also the God of Jacob. That our God is not just a God for winners, but God's also the God of those who struggle. Those of us who try to, you know, scrap by in life and make it through life, barely making it at times. Some of us even holding on for dear life. That's the kind of God we worship. He's for us, the God of Jacob. So, 
How does the story begin, or, or to use kind of a modern term here, what's the origin story? Well, the story begins in Genesis 25. I'd like you all to turn there right now. Genesis chapter 25. And in Genesis 25, the story, as most stories go, it begins before the actual person we're going to talk about. And so Jacob's story begins before he is born. In Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 through 26 is where we're going to be looking. And in this passage, we're going to discover that Isaac is 40 years old when he marries Rebekah. That's in Genesis 25, 20. And like most parents back then, they wanted children, and they wanted children quickly. But years passed by, one year, two years, three years, five years, ten years. Rebecca was not getting pregnant. And this was troubling because God had promised the grandfather Abraham that out of your seed would come a great nation. And this great nation isn't really growing. There's Abraham, and then there's Isaac. And it's not happening. And now... The third in line, Jacob, it's really not happening. In Genesis 22, it was was told to Abraham, it was repeated to Isaac. But how's the seed, how are we going to get this great nation unless Rebekah gets pregnant? Genesis chapter 25, verse 21 tells us that Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. So Isaac prays for his wife. It's the only recorded time we have of a a husband praying for his wife in the Bible. And again and again, he begged God to open Rebekah's womb. The years just pass by. Whether slowly or quickly, they just went on and on and on. No children. Where's God? Did he forget the promise? Was this some kind of cosmic, cruel joke by the Almighty? Maybe God changed his mind. Look at that verse, verse 21. It says that Isaac prayed. Now that word prayer or prayed, the word atar, it's a somewhat unusual word that's used within the vocabulary of prayer. There's various words that are used within the idea of praying. Of course the word means to ask or request, but it's more than that. This specific word means even more than that. It means to ask or request, but here's what it means. You ready for this? To plead. To plead for grace. That's what he's doing. He's pleading for God's grace. Oh God, remove this. You know, there's probably shame at this point, 10, 15 years into this. There's a stigma. Wow, why isn't she pregnant? God, remove the stigma. God, keep your promise. God, would you pour out your grace on us? Give us a child. God, be gracious to us. Have you ever prayed that? God, would you just be gracious to us, to our family? Look at verse 21. It goes on. The Lord, and what does it say there? The Lord what? Answered his prayer. And his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. Now, if you jump down to verse 26, it tells us Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. When did they get married? Anybody remember how old Isaac was? 40. How many years? 20 years they waited. 20 long years. Why do they have to wait so long for an answer to their prayer? Why do you have to sometimes wait? Why do I have to sometimes wait 10, 15, 20, 30 years for an answer to prayer? Well, we see throughout Scripture there's all sorts of reasons. And I think 
For those of you who've been in the faith for a long time now, you kind of know the answer. Some of you newer in the faith, you may not know. But I think we could all say it's in the waiting that God was developing Isaac and Rebekah's faith. Or, or Isaac and Rebekah's faith. He was developing their faith. In the waiting, God was teaching Isaac patience. Did you know the only way to develop patience is to actually go through circumstances where you must exercise a patient muscle? Did you know that? It's the only way you'll get it. You won't just be... be uh, it won't be, dis- be bestowed upon you, is what I'm trying to say. You don't all of a sudden just have, oh, patience, you have it. You go through the circumstances. And it was in the waiting that God was arranging circumstances so that when the answer finally did come to them, it would be clear to all that God would get the credit. I suspect those are the same reasons that you and I have delayed answers or what seemed to be a delayed answer to the prayer that we've been praying. God wants to develop our faith. He wants to develop patience within us. And He wants to make sure when the answer comes that God and God alone will get the credit for what has occurred. So if you're praying for something, don't give up. Keep praying. Look at verse 22. Genesis 25 and, and, and the NIV says this. I want to say the second word out loud. It says the what? The, the boys or the babies. Did you catch that? The plural? The boys, the babies jostled each other within her. Can you imagine? Rebecca finally gets pregnant and it's twins. And, and, and so she has these twins and, and, and or she's going through this pregnancy process and she has a rough pregnancy and I'm sure at first Isaac and and and, and, you know and and her they had this incredible celebration and and I can imagine you know she's in the tent and 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 she yells out the tent window I'm late I'm late (laughs) they were so excited but as the months passed the babies as the Bible says began to jostle inside her I don't know if that's a word you and I are throwing out very often. When was the last time you used the word jostle in a sentence? But the baby's jostle. What does that mean? You ready for this? Here's what it means. In the Hebrew, it means go to war. How'd you like to be uh, Rebecca? When you have two little things inside of you growing, going to war with one another. Her babies literally were fighting inside the womb. And it frightened Rebecca. So look at verse 22. She said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Do you ever get an answer to prayer from God? Only to find out, or only to later go back to God and say, God, why is this happening to me? You ever ask for something and later on go, whoa, 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 wait a second, God, why is this happening? Answered prayer can be difficult to, ha- to handle, just as much as unanswered prayer, which is why you might want to be careful what you pray for, because God just might give it to you. We pray for children, and when our children come, they're nothing but trouble. <laughs> right? We pray for a new job, and then we get one, and our boss is an absolute jerk. 
pray for a new house and we move in and we have nothing but problems with it. We pray to get married. Later on, we pray to get divorced. Then later on, we pray to get married again. Only to discover we're just never happy. We have some issues. What many have discovered about God is that His highest priority for you and I is not making our life easy. That's not His priority. I know it's one of our priorities. Life to be easy, life to be comfortable, to live out the American dream, to start here, to end there. I know that's kind of what we want in life. But God's highest priority is using our life and our faith journey to grow us, to develop us, to teach us holiness righteousness, godliness. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. And God's grace, it says, teaches us to say no. Some of you uh, from last night, you're familiar with that word no. No to ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the peering of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. God's not concerned about your happiness. He's concerned about your holiness. God's not concerned about your comfort. God's concerned about your character. And it's through the trials and the challenges and the difficulties that our character and our godliness and our righteousness and our holiness, that's when it's developed. A verse you should... I'm sure 90, maybe 100% of us are very familiar with James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. It tells us, church, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be, and here's the word, mature, complete, not lacking anything. It's going through the difficulties and the challenges of life. That's when maturity is developed. That's when we are more complete. The holiness, the righteousness. So Rebecca, feeling the struggle within her, she says what we say. Why me? Look at verse 23, Genesis 25. God gives this amazing answer. The Lord said to her, You want to know the answer to what's going on with you? Here's the answer. There's two nations that are in your womb. And two peoples from within you, they will be separated. And one people will be stronger than the other. And the older will serve the younger. Now, this is huge. Ladies, I want you to imagine for a minute being pregnant. And then God telling you have twins. And then God telling to you that you actually have two nations living inside your belly. Guys, you can't relate to this. You don't understand this. You don't get this. I, ladies, I don't even know if we, you would relate to this. But imagine that, that that's the message. And then there's two nations inside of you, and with these nations, they are going to continually be at conflict with one another. They are going to be constantly fighting with one another. Sorry, parents, you're not getting peace and quiet. You're being, can you imagine being told up front that? I mean, we're going to the pregnancy thing, and you're hoping, you're praying for good and easy and peaceful babies. You don't want a strong-willed child. You don't want any of that. 
And you're like, no, no, you got two of them. And it's going to be a constant battle. And they're like, man, we shouldn't have prayed. (laughs) To make matters worse, one of these two nations inside of you will end up being stronger than the other. In other words, there's no equality. One's going to be strong and one's going to clearly be weak. And as if that isn't bad enough, there's going to be a little bit of a role reversal. The older is going to serve the younger. Now, the role reversal doesn't mean a whole lot to you and I today, but to Rebecca, to Isaac, this is shocking news. Back then, the firstborn was always given certain inheritance rights. For example, one of the greatest parts about the firstborn's inheritance rights is they received a double portion of the inheritance. They were considered the head of the family when the parents died. But here, God is saying the role is being reversed with the kids. And the rights that are normally given to the firstborn, to the older, in your case, they will be given to the the secondborn. Now, I'll tell you this, as a firstborn myself, I would propose that we re-implement the double portion of inheritance for the firstborn. All in favor, raise your hand. Is that all the firstborns we have in here? All opposed, raise your hand. Oh my goodness, I'm, that explains a lot. I never thought to ask. Half of you are just angry at me all the time because I'm the firstborn. So I tell these great stories and you have no sympathy for me. It's all for my brother, right? That's what's been going on. I got it. In Romans chapter 9, you read it sometime. It talks a lot about the sovereignty of God. Verses 10 through 13. Paul's going to develop in this passage a point to show that salvation is entirely by God's grace. And that he, and it talks about in that passage that he chose Jacob over Esau. Those are going to be the names of the kids. That he chose Jacob over Esau before the boys were born. Before either of them had done anything, good or evil. That's, by the way, the whole sovereignty of God thing. The sovereignty of God, I will tell you, it's one of the profound mysteries of God. But back to Genesis chapter 25, look at verse 24. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twins in her womb. Verse 25, the first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. Man, if they thought, you know, this whole pregnancy journey was one of those, they get together for small groups every week, and you're not going to believe what happened this week. And, you know, they're always having conversation about what, the saga of the pregnancy. Can you imagine? Here's another shocker for the, for the small group. The first baby comes out, and he's red. And his whole body is like this red, hairy garment. It's almost as if he, he's like this wild animal. I mean, the kid was breathtaking, right? I mean, look away. I'm hideous. I mean, it was awful. (laughs) Some of you just got all those references. Some of you have no idea what I just did. (laughs) You got it back there, right? You guys. (laughs) They named him Esau. You're like, oh, what is is Esau? Well, Esau literally means, take a guess what it means. Hairy or red. Esau, hairy or red. That's his name. Genesis 25, verse 26. After this, his brother came out 
with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. So the only surprise wasn't this, this, you know, this hairy blanket that came out. Esau, come, you know, when, as he comes out, there's a hand. And holding his Esau's heel is this hand. And the second boy came out. And his name, they called him Jacob. Anybody want to take a guess what Jacob means? Heel grabber. I just named them by their attributes. Heel grabber. Years later, his name came to mean cheater, which we'll dive into later. Supplanter. The word supplanter means to overthrow by tripping up, to take the place of. If you know the story, who gets the birthright eventually? Jacob gets it, right, over Esau. Jacob to take the place of. And we're going to look at that story in future upcoming weeks. None of this story happens by accident. The way these boys came into the world revealed something about their character and their destiny. Esau, he's going to become a successful hunter. Jacob is going to become a cunning businessman. Esau is going to feel most at home in the outdoors. Jacob will spend his life trying to push and pull his way to the top. Esau is going to build a mighty kingdom. Jacob, he's going to live by his wits. Esau is going to have a fiery temper, but he will quickly get over his rage. Jacob, he's going to have a long memory. He's not going to forget. And he's going to have a guilty conscience that will plague him for years. Two boys, Harry Red and Heel Grabber. From them will come two great nations, the Israelites and the Edomites. Their destinies, you ready for this? They were decided before they were born, which again speaks to one of the mysteries of God when you talk about the sovereignty of God. Esau, he turns out to be a hunter, an outdoorsman, a strong, good-looking dude, even though he's full of hair, a natural leader, an extrovert. A simple man who lived with his emotions right there on the surface. Esau was a man, you could say, without guile. What you see is what you get. By contrast, there's Jacob. He was shy. He was reserved. He preferred to spend his days around the tent, thinking, dreaming, watching, analyzing. You see, Jacob was a complex man, What you see is not necessarily what you get. Now suppose you and I, you hear these descriptions, suppose you and I were to look at their life as they began to grow up, and we looked at them from our human point of view. And we were to begin to ask the question, okay, which one of the boys is going to be the most successful? Which one of the boys is going to seem to have God's favor and God's blessing? Most of us would look and we would say, guess who we would say? Who would we say? Do you know? We'd say Esau. You and I would look at the two boys and the way they were living their lives. Esau's out going after it, doing it. You know, Jacob's just sitting around playing with the flowers. And, you know, you just kind of like look at the two and go, he's going somewhere. Who knows what's going to happen to him? 
you ask who's going to turn out better, who's going to be a better leader, who's going to do more with his life, we'd all say Esau. Who's going to have more problems, more difficulties, more heartache, more challenges? We would all say Jacob. Looking on the surface, it appears as if God's favor rests on Esau. You and I would have chosen Esau. We would have picked Esau to be our leader. But God had another plan. God chose Jacob. God said that quiet guy, that one that all of us have written off, See, I'm going to show grace. I'm going to show my grace to that heel grabber. The story of Jacob's life is a story of continual struggle between the flesh and the spirit. Between doing things God's way or doing things our way. The struggle between self-sufficiency or God's sufficiency. It's the difference between trying to manipulate and orchestrate circumstances or situations or choosing to wait on God. In the end, God makes Jacob a prince. But it does take a lifetime to get the job done. It reminds me of that button or pin or slogan that you've heard or seen that says, please be patient. God is not finished with me yet. Can some of you say that that's true of your life? If you can, I'm looking at some of you saying it is true. I know God's not finished yet. And what I want to do here is I want to give you just kind of a couple summary thoughts for this series. And then we'll wrap it up for today. But these summary thoughts will kind of weave their way into the series as we look through Jacob's life. And here's those thoughts. First of all, God is involved in what can appear to be seemingly insignificant details of our lives. If you had been there and you had seen those two babies coming out of the womb and you saw that whole situation, you would have never dreamed that what just took place, what was just seen and observed and how that whole story unfolded, we would have never thought that that right there was a picture of a lot of what world history would be all about. We would have never known. We would have never thought anything of it. But God is sovereign. And this story, it causes us, you and I, to wrestle with these profound implications of what it really means, of of God's sovereignty and what that looks like. At first glance, it appears there are no accidents in God's plans because we know the story. Nothing happens by chance or luck or fate. Even the mundane and even ordinary parts of our life that I think we probably take for granted. Can you imagine, by God's sovereignty, that they fit into a larger unfolding plan that is sometimes seen by us, oftentimes not? The message is God is involved in your life. God doesn't, you know, spin the globe and take off. God's here. God's involved in the details of your life. Secondly, when God decides to raise up a person, nobody can prevent, hinder, or impede those plans. Job finally arrived at that conclusion, if you know Job's story. He went through an incredible amount of of circumstances, of trials, of tribulation. And he finally concluded, he finally learned, 
In Job chapter 42, he said this. Job finally replied to God and said, I now know that you can do all things, God. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 24, 26, 27. These reverses, they remind us that God's purposes will happen. Nothing can thwart them. You and I would have chosen Esau, but God said, sorry, it's Jacob. We would have said, well, then let's just make Jacob the firstborn then. But God says, no, I'm going to choose the secondborn instead. We would have given Jacob an easier road. If he's the chosen one, let's, let's make it a little easier for him. But God knew the hard road was what was needed to make him a stronger, more faithful person. Did you catch that? God knows what you need. He knows your path and what's needed in your life. And if you find yourself going through something like I find myself going through from time to times, I trust God knows what He's doing in my life. I may not want it. I may wish for something else. I may pray for something else. But I know God is sovereign. And nothing that's happening in my life is outside of His knowledge. And God might just might be doing something in these circumstances to grow me, to develop me, to strengthen me, to work His plan in other people's lives. When God works in our life, it can appear at times as if it's nothing but trouble for us. Some of you are going through profound difficulties right now. And it's been a long season for you. But John Newton understood the truth of this when he wrote in his song, Amazing Grace. He said, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. You see, nothing can stand in the way of God's plans and purposes for His world and for our lives. Third, God will take a lifetime to finish the job in us. He'll take a lifetime. God took 80 years to get Moses in shape. God took Jacob 100 years to get him in shape. It takes him a lifetime because in that, God is taking you know, if we want to use that image of clay, how we're kind of, he's the potter, we're the clay. He's taken our lump of clay full of rocks and stones and useless material. He takes our heart and he begins to shape the clay of our human heart. And he'll work on us and work on us and work on us and he will not stop until the job is finished. I imagine you have a life verse or two or three. I have a few life verses. Love, the ton of verses are my favorite verses. My life verses, John 10.10, 10, that, you know, the enemy's trying to kill, steal, and de- destroy, but Jesus came to give us life, life to the fullest, real and better life than we can ever imagine. One of my life verses. Another one of my life verses, Proverbs 3.5, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him, and then He's the one who's going to make your path straight. But my third life verse is Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. And it says this, that Paul said, I'm confident of this, that He who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. 
You see, what Paul was saying, he was letting you and I know that what God is doing in you, he will keep at it. And he will, he will bring it to, one translation says, he will bring it to a flourishing finish. I don't have time to preach on this side subject, but I'll throw a, one line out to you. Since God isn't done with us, since God hasn't given up on us, don't give up on each other. Don't give up on one another. God's still working. So how about you join alongside God? Be full of grace, full of mercy, full of compassion, forgiving, loving, Christ-like. Finally, when you and I yield our natural weaknesses to God, that's when they become the source of our greatest strength. I love 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9-10. through 10. Paul says that in his weaknesses, that's when he became strong in the Lord. Now I want you to hear the message uh, translation of this verse. I think it paints a beautiful picture. Listen to this. It says this. God said to Paul, he said, My grace is enough. It's all you need. My strength comes into its own in your weakness. And then Paul says this in this verse. Once I heard that, I was glad to let it happen. I quit focusing on the handicap and began appreciating the gift. It was a case of Christ's strength moving in on my weakness. Now I take limitations in stride and with good cheer. These limitations that cut me down to size, abuse, accidents, opposition, bad breaks, I just let Christ take over. And so the weaker I get, the stronger I become. Isn't that a beautiful picture of how God when we just yield our weaknesses to Him, he become, those become our source of greatest strength. And that's the story of Jacob's life. His scheming, it became godly tenacity. His ambition for success became ambition for God. His unfocused desire became a determination to do God's will. Perhaps you're here this morning and you feel inadequate guilty, or perhaps you're feeling this morning like your life is so tangled up that you could never imagine that it could get straightened out. Perhaps some of you are here this morning and you feel unfit for God to use you. If you feel that way, congratulations. I mean seriously, because you're an excellent candidate for the grace of God. That's what Jacob's story is all about. It's the grace of God that never, ever, ever gives up. It's the grace of God for a heel grabber. So today, our first step is to come to the Lord Jesus, to yield ourselves to Him, to open our hearts to Him, to give Jesus our whole life, the good and the bad, to give Him the positive and the negative, to turn over to God our strengths and also our weaknesses, and then how about we be patient? How about we trust God and watch Him begin to move because His grace is not just for the heel grabber. His grace is for you too. And God desires to pour that out on you and in you and work through your life. And as we go through the story of Jacob's life and see what God was doing, that I hope, I pray, will inspire you to know that God is working in you. And God is growing you, developing you, strengthening you. 
God's grace is for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we take this first step in our journeys with Jacob, God, teach us what it means to yield completely to you. Give courage, God, to those here this morning that feel inadequate or unsure or guilty. God, I pray each person here would turn to you, that they would discover, God, the free grace of the God of Jacob, the God who never gives up. God, we're excited about what you're going to show us and reveal to us these next few weeks about you, about your character, and about what you want to do in us. So God, move in us, change us. Lord Jesus, right now we come to worship you by giving you an offering. And you have shown your grace and poured out your grace on our lives when we trust you. When we trust you in all areas of our life, even in our finances. And God, this is an incredible opportunity to worship you. And I pray, God, more and more people here this morning will will allow you to work in this area of their lives. And that you'll show your grace to them. So God, we come to you joyfully willing to give you this offering. In Jesus' name, amen.